Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal. Every day, more than half of California hospitals are losing money. You would think a pandemic would be good for business, but treating COVID patients created a perfect storm to financially stress and in some cases bankrupt hospitals. In fact, the moment the virus started spreading, hospitals started dipping into cash reserves. We'll talk about what happened and why the pandemic is still haunting healthcare today. That's right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. The only hospital in Madera County recently closed, and now the nearest facility is 60 miles away in Fresno. And that hospital is often full. In Oakland, where I live, there are three hospitals within a five-mile radius, and I honestly, I can't imagine driving an hour away if my daughter broke her arm or my mom had a heart attack. But that's the reality facing, or 150,000 residents in Madera are facing. And experts predict that many more California hospitals could face a similar demise. On today's show, we will find out why hospitals are in a precarious financial position. And we're joined by Carmela Coyle. She's the president and CEO of California Hospital Association. Glenn Melnick, he's a health economist at USC. Christoph Stremikis, he's the director of market analysis and insight at the California Healthcare Foundation. Thank you all so much for joining us. And Carmela, just give us a little bit of a backstory Who does the Madera County Hospital serve? The Madera County Hospital serves uh, the population in that surrounding area, at least 30 miles uh, in every direction, really the only hospital in the county of Madera. And that population uh, in the Central Valley tends to be a lower income population. Uh, That hospital had three rural health clinics that were serving uh, a farm worker population, uh, which means that the loss of that hospital has been just devastating to the Central Valley. And Glenn, kind of briefly describe why did it close? Uh, Financial reasons. It's a small, uh, not quite rural hospital, uh, but it's a small independent hospital. It had been limping along pre-COVID. And then when COVID hit, it got clobbered financially and just didn't have the financial reserves uh, to to make it through. And Christoph, why did the pandemic, why did it kind of create this perfect storm that that led to now hospitals closing? What were the ingredients that kind of created this mess? Yeah, there's two things that I really, uh, that I think were particularly pronounced or or that the pandemic uh, really accelerated. Uh, One was pressure in terms of revenue. So declining revenue in many hospitals uh, across the state. So a decline in um, uh, inpatient and outpatient care. 
And when you're seeing fewer patients, your less revenue is, is coming into the hospital, and that increases the amount of pressure that a facility would feel. And then the second is on underlying expenses or the amount of money that hospitals need to pay for um, uh, people who are providing care within that facility. Uh, those increased almost across the board for uh, this facility in Madera, as well as facilities across the state. And Glenn, do you want to add to that? Why did everything get a lot more expensive during the pandemic and kind of continues to to haunt us today? Well, I think you know, the, 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 the COVID uh, pandemic, I think, caused a lot of people to stay home. And so one of the things that hit hospitals is actually you would expect during a pandemic, their their utilization would skyrocket. And in fact, the opposite happened. But so the same happened with staff from hospitals. And so there's a shortage of their regular workers, uh, both in uh, nurses and non-nursing staff. Um, and hospitals don't have wiggle room. They ha- they're 24-7. They have to be staffed and ready to receive patients. And so, you know, that triggered a, a nationwide kind of shortage and restructuring uh, of, of needed personnel across the country. And then we had to pay for travel nurses who were charging $250, $300 an hour. And I've heard from many facilities that that's, that's still the case. And then just to, to clarify that, you know, hospitals early on, people didn't want to go to hospitals. And that's why we didn't see or why hospitals, you know, we thought there would be, you know, sort of a boon of financials um, for, a pand- for, for early on. But that didn't happen because people were scared to go to the hospital. Is that correct, Carmela? I think it was a couple of things. Remember, in California, at first, we actually shut down other procedures in order to try to make room, as a matter of state policy, to make room for COVID patients. Uh, We quickly worked with state leaders to reverse that policy uh, because that was financially devastating as well. But yes, we have seen people who stayed away. And now, of course, we're finding that California hospitals are not just at capacity, but over capacity, as many people are now uh, returning. And if we go back, Carmela, to the example in Madera County, I I see one 2019 study shows that when a hospital closes in a rural area, mortality rates, uh, you know, for medical emergencies like sepsis and heart attacks can increase by, it looks like, nearly 9%. Do you foresee a pretty dark future for the folks in Madera County? Unfortunately, I do. And I see a dark future beyond Madera County. What's happening in Madera County is really just the tip of the iceberg. But the challenges are far more than the people of Madera having to drive 30 miles to the next nearest hospital. Uh, If they drive the next 30 miles uh, to the nearest hospital, because hospitals are at capacity, they still may not be able to be seen timely And our deepest concern is about those who can't drive that 30 miles and may, as a result, not be able to access the care that they need until it becomes even more emergent. Uh, And that's when our healthcare system really begins to fall apart. And Christoph, are there other places in the state where hospitals are in this precarious situation? And, And where are they located? I think the answer is yes, there are some hospitals that are in a precarious state. And I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, when we look across the state of California, it's really a highly nuanced sort of uh, picture that we see. So there are some hospitals that are that were struggling before the pandemic that are struggling now. Um, when we look as a whole, though, um, uh, you know, operating margins which, within California facilities, while not 
you know, back to what they were before COVID, uh, they are on the whole, you know, positive. So there are there are particular facilities, particularly those safety net facilities or facilities that are serving uh, patients that have lower incomes. Um, there are some of those within the state of California right now that were and continue to struggle. On the whole, um, there are some facilities that are doing very well, though. So here in San Francisco, there was a time when I think St. Francis was in, you know, potentially met close. Alta Bates was in a position, sounded like, you know, they might not be able to keep their doors open. So is this just a rural problem or is this kind of like you were saying, just more nuanced and it can happen anywhere? It can happen anywhere. You know, there there was a recent uh, independent study published in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association that looked at the financial performance of California hospitals in 2020 and through the first half of 2021. And in that study, um, the the facilities that were under particular financial per- pressure were these safety net facilities. They tended to be teaching hospitals in non-rural areas that were serving a lot of uh, Medi-Cal and Medicare patients. And Carmela, where are you most worried? What hospitals are sort of on your radar that you're worried about that are kind of in a, in a situation that's not super stable? Yeah, we've got a, a, a slightly different view than Christoph's. I, I think Christoph uh, has described what's been experienced in the past, and that is there have been hospitals, there were hospitals, who were losing money before the pandemic. What's very different, and I think really important, is that the entire hospital field has experienced this huge economic shock, and that was the pandemic, where hospitals lost $20 billion over two years, and even after federal relief, they still lost $12 billion. And so what's different is, my analogy is to a family that may be living paycheck to paycheck, and that works. But when you experience a significant economic shock, right, they total their, their car, a, a tree falls on their house, it's very difficult when you're living paycheck to paycheck to get out of that hole. And that's exactly what's happened to the California hospital field. This isn't just uh, safety net hospitals. It's not just rural hospitals. Clearly, if you were in trouble before the pandemic, this is a challenge. But we then also taken hospitals who were doing better before the pandemic and have completely wiped out their cash balances, their piggy bank, if you will, in trying during the two years of the pandemic to make ends meet. So this is much more widespread. And any particular hospitals you want to point out that are that you're, you have your eye on, Carmela? We do have our eye on them. Uh, but as, uh, as we talk about this topic, we want to be very careful. We don't want to repeat what happened in Madera County. And that is, as you begin talking about this, it is so sensitive. Uh, we saw temporary staffing agencies pull their staff when they heard that hospitals were in financial difficulty because those agencies were afraid they wouldn't get paid. We saw nurses and doctors beginning to look elsewhere. There are some organizations that have been public about their plight. Uh, the one that has been most public is Cahuilla Health uh, in the Cahuilla Healthcare District in Tulare County. Uh, but many others are um, too concerned that if they express this out loud, they too will lose their temporary staff, their current staff, and the trust of their communities. Yeah, Carmel has has more information than I do on what's happening right now in some of these facilities. Um, the data that we all have access to that is reported up to the state of California um, as, as well as the data that nonprofit institutions publish annually in their audited financial statements, um, do show 
that on the whole, you know, facility uh, hospitals in the state of California are things are still not good, but things are getting better. I'm particularly concerned, again, about these safety net hospitals and in the independent you know, analysis that I've seen of some of that data that is reported to the state, as well as published in audited financial statements. Among these safety net hospitals in 2020 and 2021, there were losses of about $3.2 billion. And I just want to put that number in context. In the state of California, we spent uh, north of $400 billion on healthcare, and about $150 billion of that went into the hospital sector. $3.2 billion is a lot of money, and I just want to benchmark that against what we're spending. Got it. Got it. We will continue this conversation. We're coming up on a break here. We're talking about the difficult financial issues facing some California hospitals with Carmela Coyle. She's the president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. Glenn Melnick, he's a health economist at USC. And Christoph Stremikis, he's the director of market analysis and insight for the California Healthcare Foundation. Excuse me. And we want to hear from you. Have you had a situation at a hospital that you want to share with us? Have you experienced good or bad care recently? Are you noticing that your hospital may be struggling? Or maybe you're a doctor or nurse and you can speak specifically to how well your facility is doing financially and how that's affecting your work. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or on Twitter, you can find us Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Alexis Madrigal. And we're talking about the perilous state facing some California hospitals. And we are joined now by Carmela Coyle. She's the president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. Glenn Melnick, he's a health economist at USC. Christoph Stremikis, he's the director of market analysis and insight for the California Healthcare Foundation. And I want to bring into the conversation Dr. Luis Abrashamian. He's an attending physician for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Providence Torrance in Los Angeles County. Welcome, doctor. Can you just paint us a picture? How is this affecting your your hospital? How is the financial situation at your hospital and how is that affecting patient care in the ER? Sure. Thanks for having me. So as we talked about before with the contracted labor pool, leaner staffing and less nurses on the front lines right now, uh, what we're really doing is focusing on retention, teamwork, 
uh, with the nurses who are transitioning into practice. They're paired with a senior nurse and a physician to kind of guide them into practice um, and focusing on keeping their wellness um, at the bedside and transitioning them into becoming leaders in the department. Um, much the same way uh, a pilot might announce, uh, you know, that there's a flight delayed, what's going on, come out and speak to the people who are waiting. Uh, with the increasing waiting times to maybe see a physician uh, because of the staffing challenges, uh, we'll institute lobby speeches where a physician will go out to the waiting area to keep patients informed about the delays, reassure them that they will be seen and, you know, to update us with any changes that might happen in triage, um, things of that nature to kind of, you know, pivot as far as the challenges we're having with getting people not just seen in the ED, but also upstairs to a hospital bed once they're hospitalized. And what is an average wait time? Or is, is there an average wait time for, at your hospital in the ER? <laughs> there is, but it changes on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, certainly weekdays might be a little busier than weekends for various reasons, but it can be anywhere from an empty waiting area to a few hours wait to get seen if you have a non-emergent complaint. Um, in general, if you're having a heart attack, if you're in septic shock, if you're having a stroke, you'll get seen right away. But if you have spillover from something that might be able to be seen in the clinic or an outpatient setting, you might have to wait a little bit. And is this just a frustrating thing for patients? Like when I'm sitting at the airport and I'm waiting for my flight, it's generally not, you know, that a, a, a big of an emergency. It might be uncomfortable and I might get mad, but I'm not sure. having some major, you know, medical emergency. So how do these longer wait times, and that doesn't sound too bad at your hospital. I've talked to some doctors, you know, who are saying six, eight hours can be, you know, pretty normal It's in some parts of the state and in some parts of the country. How does it affect patient care when they're just sitting in the, in the lobby? Sure. So by the time you see them, if they've been waiting, um, you add pain, frustration of the unknown, you know, how long they're waiting to be seen. So by the time you see them, you have to do a bit of a service recovery and really check in and lean into those patients and let them know that despite the wait, you're still there for them. You're there with them. You're going to take care of them. Um, But there's maybe a few minutes of service recovery or checking in with them after those protracted waits to let them know maybe why they had to wait or what's going on and that you have their full attention. So there's that new component as far as addressing that wait time versus just, you know, getting them in and getting them seen right away. Carmela, what do we know from the research in terms of how these long wait times have hit patients and in terms of, you know, patient care um, and the quality of care? Yeah, and perhaps less from the research um, and more uh, anecdotally at the moment, I think, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Abrashamian is describing a circumstance, what we hear more often, uh, and just recently, literally in one of our large systems, 100 patients uh, waiting to be seen in the emergency department. The challenge is that we actually have people who may leave without being seen. Um, And that, of course, is the worst of all outcomes. Uh, It's important that we maintain our nurse staffing ratios. Uh, You know, in the state of California, we have a certain number of nurses per patient, but that means that with fewer nurses available, we've got backups in the emergency department. And the concern is that when people leave without being seen, there are conditions uh, that may worsen and that may uh, result in significant harm to that individual. Well, let's bring in a caller to the conversation. Uh, Brandon, you're on the air in Foster City. Brandon? Hi, everybody. Good morning. Um, I hope you could hear me okay. My, uh, I worked for a local biotech company, and I just want to mention the distributors and the incredible cost they add. I really feel like there's sometimes I would interact with hospitals, 
I would know what they're paying for Avastin or Rituxan or some of these medications, uh, Polyvis, you know, some of these newer ones, the MS drugs. But basically, the markups were incredible. And I wish, I want, what I want to make, uh, see if the hospital people would get on board with, we need a not-for-profit entity to handle distribution. Uh, and I would do want to give three names of McKesson, Cardinal, and Amerisource Bergen. Those are all publicly traded companies. McKesson, ticker MCK, has a $50 billion market cap. They pay a CEO millions of dollars like, for handling simply something like distribution. And all they do, I just wish the public to know, all they do is buy by the truckload, mark it up uh, 500%, 1,000%. I'm not talking 10, 20, 30% markups, reasonable margins for running a business. But they, more importantly, they're not essential. All, they could completely be kicked out of the system. And the government, for example, could handle distribution. But the reason they stay involved is because they, and a lot of corporate America, they use bribery brokers. And really, that's what they should be called, but the lobbyists, to keep themselves in the loop. And really, again, MCK is McKesson, Marisource is ABC, and Cardinal. You can look them all up. They all have, you know, tens of billions of dollars market cap, highly paid executives. And those people do not interface with patients. They do not render any care. They do not design drugs. And they're not doing what your, your guests are doing, which is hosting a real facility that it takes money to keep the lights on and to staff that place and Got keep it filled with expensive equipment. Got it, Brianna. I love the passion in your voice. Thank you so much for sharing your comment. Uh, Glenn, I'd love for you to respond to that in terms of you know distributors and, and how they're playing a role here. Uh, yes. You know, the caller, I think, raises uh, an example of a much broader point with our healthcare system, which is there are lots of sources of economic inefficiency because it's such a large part of our economy. It's almost 20 percent of our GDP. Healthcare spending nationally is over four trillion dollars a year. And we have this mixed system, uh, parts of which rely on what we call market forces. But the markets have evolved in such a way that there's lots of inefficiencies. The caller's example is one, but there are lots spread across the system that we, we need to finally take a hard look at how our system has evolved and start to correct these inefficiencies if we're going to still rely on kind of the marketplace as a way to keep our system more cost effective. And where would you start, Glenn? What, what, where would you start to, to move things around? Well, you know, we're talking about hospitals today. So, you know, hospitals are the largest piece of healthcare spending. And research shows that, you know, over the last 15 years, increasing hospital prices have been one of the largest drivers of health insurance premiums. You know, and I think the right way to look at all of this is to look at, from the consumer perspective, how much do we have to pay for healthcare every year? And can we afford it? To, to have it to continue to increase at the rate it has been. Uh, my feeling is that we it's not sustainable. And so we need to start to look at how do we, for example, do we restore some competition to help hospital markets in California? There's 350 general acute care hospitals. Many of them have market power where they operate. And so they can charge prices that are above comp competitive levels. Should we allow that to continue or should we develop new policies to try to, to get spending at a more sustainable rate. You look at other areas, you know, one area I think we're looking at these days is manpower and nursing, for example. There was a recent study in the nursing literature that showed that nursing schools turned away nearly 100,000 applicants 
who could have been admitted but for the absence of seats in the nursing schools. Well, that tells me that there's a disconnect somewhere uh, on the supply side and our educational system. And we need to open up more seats <laughs> so that we can get more of these folks working into, these, into, into this uh, system. Those are just a couple of examples. I'm sure there are many more. A listener writes, procedures are so expensive and my husband was in the hospital and the bill was over $95,000. So who is making money if not the hospitals? Insurance companies, Christoph? It's, uh, I, I think it's an important point. And, you know, when I look at the performance of our healthcare system in the state of California, I really look at the impact of that system on consumers, uh, the impact in terms of the financial impact really um, is is quite devastating to a, a large proportion of the state. You know, we just did a poll, uh, released it last week, and we were probing on cost-related access problems. And there's now one out of two Californians that is not going and getting care that they need because of costs. And we asked specifically around medical debt, about a third of the state now, a third, one out of three people in California has some form of medical debt. And those that do have medical debt, about 20% owe more than $5,000. The financial impact of this system on Californians across the state is really, really detrimental. So who is making the most money? Like, where is the system, like, tipped in the sense that, you know, you go and you pay these ridiculous prices or insurance companies are covering these incredible costs. Why is it not working out? There, you know, there are different people have different opinions around, uh, you know, where we know we have some information on where money is flowing. One of the things that I pay a lot of attention to is where like waste and inefficiencies are within that system. There are many buckets of waste, waste and inefficiency. Um, this is money that's not making people any healthier. We could take it out of the system without harming access or quality. Um, certainly the largest bucket of that, researchers point again and again to some of the administrative inefficiencies within the system. You know, that would be one area if I was prioritizing that I would I would look to reform. Another listener and writes. I, oh, go ahead, Carmela. I, I wonder if I could jump in there and maybe tie Glenn and Christoph's comments together. And that is, I think it's important that we also look under the hood of the healthcare system. I agree that there are economic uh, inefficiencies that we need to focus on. But perhaps the greatest challenge that we have is we pretend that this is a market-based healthcare system when the majority of the care that's provided is paid for by the state and federal government. And what we saw in Madeira and those hospitals most at risk are at risk because they serve large numbers of Medi-Cal patients. Those tend to be our lower income, most vulnerable individuals in the state of California and Medicare patients. Uh, those are people over the age of 65. The problem and why for many others healthcare is so expensive is that the state of California pays only 75 cents for every dollar of care provided to our lowest income individuals in the state. And by the way, that's one in three Californians. And the federal government only reimburses 75 cents for every dollar of care provided to somebody over the age of 65. So the problem is that this was a system designed to then try to pass those unfunded government costs onto privately insured patients. And it creates uh, a, a terrible imbalance. And so I think one of the things we should focus on 
is really pressing state and federal governments to pay their fair share of their beneficiaries' costs of care. Glenn, is it that simple that this is really a problem with the the payments of Medicare and Medi-Cal? I would, I guess, take a different view from an economic perspective, which is um, that you know, we have this mixed system where we have government regulations that set one set of prices, and then for most of the employed population, get their job through their uh, commercial insurance through their employer. That's a market-based system uh, where prices are negotiated under market forces. And you know, the argument is that we need to get much higher prices from the commercially insured population to uh, underwrite the potential losses from the other payers. Economists look at that and say, well, wait a second. Let's say that we were to double the price that Medicare pays to hospitals tomorrow. Would any of those hospitals then call Blue Cross up and say, you know what? We just got this huge windfall and we're going to lower our prices to you. That just does not happen in an economic market. The way it works is uh, organizations look at their different sets of customers and they get the highest prices they can get generally from each one of those sets of customers. And so it, it's it's not as simple uh, as just raising payments uh, from government payers because total spending will just increase. We're talking about the difficult financial issues facing some California hospitals. California. We're joined by Glenn Melnick. He's a health economist at USC. Christoph Stremikis, he's the director of market analysis and insight at the California Healthcare Foundation. Carmela Coyle, president and CEO of California Hospital Association. And Dr. Luis Abrashamian, he's the attending physician in, at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Providence Torrance in Los Angeles County. And we want to hear from you. Have you experienced a long wait time at your local hospital? Are you satisfied with the care there? Maybe what role does a community hospital serve in your community? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. We have a comment from Robert, a passionate one. This discussion makes me nauseous. Only in the United States of America, where healthcare and hospitals in particular are run as for-profit businesses, would such a discussion even occur? In modern, civilized countries around the world where healthcare is a right, people shake their heads in wonder at what Americans put up with. What do you think of that comment, Christoph? Well, certainly when we look internationally, um, the the U.S. healthcare system... um, underperforms when it comes to population key population health indicators like that is true and we spend far more on a per capita basis than uh, other countries do um, for again better population health outcomes um, I don't know the I don't think there's one particular solution or one particular model um, that is going to solve all of the problems um, that we have here uh, in this state and in this country. Um, but I think there are there are things that we can learn from other systems. One of those things is um, that always strikes me is the investment that some countries make in primary care. And we're talking a lot about hospitals today, and certainly they're an important component of the acute care delivery system here in California. But when we look at our system for providing uh, earlier primary and preventive care to Californians, including Californians with low incomes, we see big gaps in that system, and we don't have the providers that we need to provide that type of care in the state. 
you know, we talked a bit about the long wait times at ERs. Um, we've been talking to that, uh, talking to Dr. Luis Abrashamian about those long wait times. And it's my understanding that the Affordable Care Act was meant to do exactly what you just talked about, was create more primary care so the ER would have some relief. Why didn't that work? I'm, I'm not ready to say, um, you, you know, some, that it did or did not work. I think, you know, inc- increasing the amount of money that we're paying primary care providers provides an incentive to bring more providers into that system. Um, I think it's a it's a complicated issue and it requires like multifaceted policies, both at the state and federal level. Um, and so I'm, I'm not ready to uh, to, to say that was a failure. Um, I am ready to say that uh, we do have more work to do and we need to support our primary care system here in the state of California. Dr. Abrashamian, where would you like hospitals to be focused in terms of m- creating better patient care? Where would you like the finances to, to move a little bit so that patients benefit? Sure. So uh, I think moving them, you know, obviously I'm seeing everything through a physician and uh, bedside lens. But I think as many resources can be allocated to direct patient care uh, on the front lines, uh, that will open up beds given the you know ratio that we have with nursing four to one in general to maintain safety. That will open up more beds upstairs, more throughput through the hospital. Um, it'll bring more revenue to the hospital um, through getting patients in, getting patients into the OR procedures um, and direct patient care. and. You know, at the same time, kind of there's been more administrative or middleman uh, payments through um, insurance. I think, you know, the more resources that can be allocated both to the bedside in the hospital, but also, as mentioned, to the primary care setting, um, that will definitely get patients through the system because there won't be as many patients coming to the ED. Well, thank you, Dr. Abrashamian. He's an attending physician at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Providence Torrance in Los Angeles County. Stay with us. We're talking about the difficult financial issues facing California hospitals. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking about the difficult financial issues facing some California hospitals. We're joined by Glenn Melnick. He's a health economist at USC. Christoph Stremikis, he's the director of market analysis and insight at the California Healthcare Foundation. Carmela Coyle, president and CEO of California Hospital Association. And we want to hear from you. Maybe you've experienced a situation in a hospital that you would like to share about your patient care experience. Um, Are you concerned that your local community hospital may be financially struggling? Maybe it's going to shut down. Or maybe you're a doctor or nurse 
health aid? Is your hospital facility struggling? And how is that affecting you? Tell us your story. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. A listener writes, staffing shortage is a major concern. Is anything being done to increase the number of doctors and nurses? In other words, is our nation creating more medical schools and nursing schools or doing anything else that would help? Carmela, do you have any sense of how we're going to increase staff at our hospitals? Yes, there is activity, both the state and the federal level, as has been described. We are uh, short nurses, short physicians, and here's the, the even worse news. As we just take a look at the demographics in the United States, we're looking at population growth of about 10% in the next decade, 45% in the population over age 65. And nurses and doctors are baby boomers too, so more and more retiring. So this gap between the need for healthcare and the number of providers available is actually going to get worse. Um, There is much, uh, the governor put significant funding in his budget for workforce development and improvement. Um, There are many conversations going on between healthcare and local community and four-year colleges. The challenges it takes time uh, in the pipeline to, uh, to educate nurses and doctors. So it's not a quick fix. We're also looking at some legislation partnering uh, with organized labor where we can create paths for people already in healthcare. They've already chosen healthcare to move on to higher levels. So a lot of work going on. It's just not an overnight fix. Well, let's bring in a caller. Jerry, you're on the air in Santa Rosa. Uh, yeah, my question was, I was reading about this a while back, years ago, And I found out at that time, if you invested in building a hospital, within just a couple of years, through tax breaks, you basically paid the cost of the hospital. So investors are basically being paid for by taxpayers to build a hospital. Why doesn't the government just build them with taxpayer funds and cut that whole section out? Glenn? Well... Uh, you know, there are countries that are that, you know, have entirely run system owned and run systems by government. I, I don't think Americans would be happy with that model. Uh, we're, we've we are much more of a, a, a capitalist free market economy based society. And so uh, turning over, you know, the healthcare system to the government, I don't think uh, would make most Americans happy in the long run. Uh, as an economist, I much prefer that we focus on uh, improving the, the performance of this system and keeping it market-based. I mean, a market-based system provides tremendous benefits to consumers. If it's working well, it provides the right services at the right quality, at the right price that people are willing to pay for. Uh, the problem is that we've lost a lot of that competitive pressure. Uh, we need regulate regulations, unfortunately, to come in and to restore competition uh, to respond to consumers' uh, needs and wants better. Let's bring in Andy to the conversation. Andy and Alameda. Uh, Yes, good morning. Thank you for this uh, discussion. Um, I just wanted to comment. uh, I was a nurse educator for a few years, and um, yes, a large number of people are turned away from nursing education because of the way that the system is set up. Um, We have a community um, 
college-based system uh, where nurses are trained in community colleges, but that's a very small number. The majority are trained in commercial schools where students um, pay to be trained as nurses. Um, and those are very expensive um, and limited and, um, to my mind, not particularly well regulated. Um, but the community colleges cannot expand because the uh, professors uh, have a cap on how much they are paid, which is a lot less than an experienced advanced practice or um, uh, a, a nurse with the credentials to teach can earn working in the hospital or working in, in the private sector. So there's a very limited uh, way that the community colleges can expand their nursing programs. Gotcha. So there's a kind of a bottleneck. So that's, that's my basic comment. The, the way the system is set up, and to my mind, nobody seems to be looking at that. The, the, the Board of Nursing doesn't look at that and regulate it in any effective way, and the state doesn't seem to do so either. The nurses... The young people wanting to be nurses are there, and we don't have a system to accommodate them and meet the, the need of the uh, industry. Well, Christoph is waving his hand, so I think you have a comment. The, Anthony makes a good point here, and I think the broad point is we need to reform our the system that we have to train uh, healthcare providers, and that goes for um, doctors, nurses, community health workers, all sorts of healthcare providers. We know that we have shortages and we don't have the right types of providers in the right places. One of the reforms, you know, we're talking about hospitals today when um, we're thinking about graduate medical education is moving that out of the hospital actually, out into the community. You know, when we're looking at shortages of providers, certainly one of the largest shortages that we have here in California are primary care uh, providers. And Primary care doesn't necessarily or often should not be delivered in a hospital. And so it doesn't make sense to train folks then or situate that graduate medical education in the hospital. And so as we're looking forward, I think there's many things that we need to do in order to prepare our workforce for the future, but looking at uh, increasing the number of slots that we have in the training that we can do outside the hospital setting is particularly important. Let's bring Mary into the conversation. Mary in San Francisco. Hi, I'm a retired nurse. I worked with uh, the Department of Public Health in San Francisco for 30 years, and I am concerned about the numbers of new graduate nurses who aren't able to get a job because the hospitals will not finance the training programs that are needed to get a new nurse up to snuff. And so um, you have this you know, of course, there needs to be an effort to get more people through nursing school. Um, which, of course, is a, has a financial cost and you need enough faculty. But then you need to have training programs in the hospitals. And the hospitals are not offering them because they're expensive to train a nurse for 10 weeks. Then you, then you have this big gap between who's out there who could possibly be learning and working and then who is aging. So I think if anything in this national crisis, it would be to the particularly public hospitals first um, with, for, for running training programs in all of their areas, and including in primary care. Thank you so much for that comment. Kim writes, firstly, hospitals have treated their nurses miserably. 
Little wonder they are now compelled to hire expensive travel nurses. Second, the insurance industry has created a hostile contracting process that leaves smaller community hospitals without any negotiating power. That is a process that needs a level playing field. Also, hospitals continue to have top-heavy administrative staff earning six-figure salaries and use expensive consultants for problems administrative staff should be able to solve. Hospitals insist that all unscheduled admissions go through their emergency room, which is an expensive process. Many admissions could be handled as direct admissions when there is an obvious diagnosis and care plan that would solve some of the high census in the emergency rooms. Uh, let's go to Toro in Richmond, who is also a nurse. Welcome, Toro. It's Toro. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Go ahead. So um, I, I just wanted to say that to take sort of the free market approach to something involving patient care is so wrong because it's not like you're a regular consumer. You can't choose not to go to the hospital if you have an emergent medical need. So therefore, to say, oh, well, a free market approach is just so much better because competition is better, not necessarily true when it comes to life and death decisions. Glenn? Well, the caller, uh, you know, actually... uh is right in a couple of uh, instances. So, you know, one of the problems is uh, hospitals slowly over the last 25 years have quietly become giant emergency departments. So in California, for example, well over half of all the patients that end up in an inpatient bed in a California hospital enter through the emergency department. All right. And so when we think about you know, a market-based competitive system, we think about, you know, buyers and sellers, be, you know, having a choice. When it comes to emergency hospital care, consumers don't really have much choice. And so this has, in fact, distorted this process of negotiations uh, to come up with, you know, efficient prices for hospital care. That's one of the major contributors as to why we see rising hospital prices in this country, not just California. If I could just add one more thing uh, about, you know, we're talking about what has happened to California hospitals to date from the pandemic. We were hoping that the, now that the pandemic is hopefully in, in the rearview mirror, things would get better. But in fact, hospitals are facing tremendous headwinds. We're in the process of updating data for, for a project for Christoph at the California Healthcare Foundation. And the early data that we're looking at show that the problems actually for hospitals are looking to get worse, that their financial status has deteriorated worse in the last year since the pandemic, and uh, that they're facing tremendous headwinds. So uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to be seeing uh, you know, more problems and more radio shows like this to talk about the financial problems facing California hospitals. We're, well, speaking of financials, this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. So for more information about how to sp support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Leslie McClurg. And we're talking about the difficult financial issues facing some California hospitals. We want to hear from you. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, if you have a story you want to share. Let's go to Tom in Los Gatos. Tom, you're on the air. Thank you. Great show. Uh, I heard from a Stanford cardiologist about a year, year and a half ago, 
And there's a massive backlog, uh, he said, between two and three million Americans who need open heart or some kind of heart surgery. Uh, but it's not being addressed uh, possibly because of uh, line jumpers from uh, other countries. They do the same thing with kidneys. You know, they save Amer- Americans die in a car accident. They harvest the kidneys and other organs. And then they call up Saudi Arabia or some rich country and say, uh, we have organs, the American quality organs. Come here and, uh, next flight and we'll do the operation. So uh, I was wondering what kind of regulations, is, you know, it's American donors who are supplying organs to uh, foreign rich foreigners at a very uh, subsidized price. You know, earlier uh, man was saying that over half of medical dollars are government dollars, federal and state. So it seems like it's, it's the massive corruption of our medical system goes way, way beyond just uh, being counting to uh, uh, murder. Is, is this a problem, Carmela? Do you, do you feel like this issue um, is really at play here? I think the the fundamental issue that the caller is referring to, and that is long wait times for certain surgeries and specialty procedures, has everything to do with lack of the specialty staff needed to do it, and not so much the other things that I think he's covered. Uh, These staff shortages are critical, and if we don't have the appropriately trained uh, nurse or physician available for that particular surgery, it simply has to be postponed and can't be done. And, and I think that's the, the, the challenge that we're facing. Not only are we short on the staffing personnel, but to the earlier conversation, hospitals are the catcher's mitt of all of society's problems. And what we're really seeing right now in our emergency departments is due to a lack of primary care and to a lack of mental health care, behavioral health specialists, where our hospitals are now backing up with people who shouldn't be in the hospital. But because it's not a market system, the hospital is the only place that you can come and be screened and stabilized without uh, regard to ability to pay. So we are the place of refuge and we see the need for care, not necessarily hospital care, but for care exploding in the nation's hospitals. I heard last week while I was reporting, because I'm a healthcare reporter when I'm not doing this, from an ER doc in San Diego who said the step-down facilities, you know, rehab facilities, long-term care facilities, psych beds, has gotten so backed up at her hospital that she has several, not just one, but several patients who have been waiting for two years to get into a step-down facility. So absolutely good point there, Carmela. Matthew writes... My friend was bitten by a brown recluse spider last week and struggled to find care. He finally got into an urgent care facility with a 12 a.m. appointment and was in great pain. Five patients came in and were seen before him. When he asked why he was told that, medical patients were last to be seen after all the concierge patients who pay an extra fee were were put to the front of the line. It seems we have a wonderful example of the medical caste system in our state here. Unfortunately, my friend left without getting the care he needed and went to an amateur natural healer who helped him. How can payment methods trump medical exigency at these facilities? Is that even legal? What do you think, Christoph? I I don't know the answer to that. I'm not exactly sure how how those things are handled. What I do know in terms of you know differential treatment within our system here in California, when it comes to access to the system and wait times within the system, 
Um, certainly, there are problems across the board, which I referenced earlier. Uh, but when we look at uh, among Californians with low incomes, the amount of time that they're waiting to go and see a primary care provider, or a mental health care provider, uh, there is a significant proportion of people that are just waiting way longer than is reasonable. Absolutely. A listener writes, can your guests tell us one purely market-based system in another country that produces better results than the U.S. or better than socialized health care? Glenn? Well, you know, there's not too many countries that have uh, a system that's similar to ours with market-based. You know, the one that's pointed to is Singapore, which is, uh, uh, you, know, um, you know, not easy, not a fair comparison because it's only two million people. But they have much more of kind of an economically efficient design system, um, you know, which is purely market based. And uh, uh, but I don't think it's one that we would adopt here. Well, it doesn't seem like it's working out very well because another listener writes, I wouldn't even think of going to an ER to be seen by a doctor because of the wait times. Obviously, if it was an emergency, I would go. But if it was something that I could wait on, even if if I was in a lot of pain, I'd wait to see a doctor. So hopefully we will have a better system where that won't be the case going forward. Uh, I wish we had more time to talk about the policies at play that could maybe remedy the system. But next time, we've been talking about the difficult financial issues facing some California hospitals. We've been joined by Glenn Melnick. He's a health economist at USC. Christoph Stremikis. He's a director of market analysis and insight at the California Healthcare Foundation. And Carmela Coyle, president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. And we were joined earlier by Dr. Luis Abrashamian. He's an attending physician at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Providence Torrance in Los Angeles County. And thank you all so much for joining us and being part of this conversation. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. Stay tuned for another hour with host Rachel Myro. You won't want to miss it. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. 
And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.